Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. This summer, we're doing a teaching series entitled, Some of Our Favorite Characters in the Bible. This is kind of a fun one, isn't it? Uh, We put in the newsletter uh, to click the link if you want us If you want to let us know who your favorite Bible character is, some of your favorite Bible characters, uh, and that's in the newsletter, we we would love to hear from you. You can put it in the description under the video. We'd love to hear some of your favorite characters in the Bible, and then, I don't know, it's early enough, we might be able to squeeze them in the schedule and speak on some of them through the course of the summer. But today, I want to preach on one of my favorite characters from the Bible. He's an eight-year-old kid. And he led an entire nation in revival, reform, and restoration. Eight-year-old kid, Josiah, you got it. Second Kings chapter 22 in verse 1. If you want to turn there, Second Kings 22 in verse 1. Uh, last weekend, we were with some friends from New Brunswick, and one of their kids is named Josiah. And he's just like a couple years old, just learning to walk and talk and do all those things that that age group does. And uh, yeah, as I was thinking about going on that trip and being with those guys and thinking about Josiah, it sparked this thought from 2 Kings chapter 22. So let's look in verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Quick math. How old was he when he was finished? 39. Okay, thank you. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah and Boscath. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. You've heard that song, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back. He did not turn aside from the right or the left. Eight years old, as king, my son is, well, uh, eight years old. Some people think that, that Josiah was the youngest, but actually there was one who was younger in Judah, and he was seven years old, Jehoash, seven years old. So my son Reese is seven, he turns eight uh, next week. Reese is into... Um, bathroom humor, I guess I'll say, and comic books, and arguing with his sister. Actually, sometimes they play really good together, and I saw a meme about this the other night. I thought it was hilarious. Uh, When the kids are playing really well together and getting along, and it's a beautiful moment, we call that pre-fighting. Because you know it's just on the horizon. Eight years old. King of Judah. Can you imagine an eight-year-old king? And he reigned 31 years, so that's to age 39, as we said. Josiah accomplished more in three decades than any other king in Judah. He never saw his 40s, never saw his 50s, never saw his 60s or beyond. 39. He did what was right. Now, this this is a classic line in the books of Chronicles and Kings. Either the king did what was wrong in the eyes of the Lord, or the king did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And 
the kingdom of Israel separated shortly after the reign of King Solomon, King David's son. Separated into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom, which was known as Judah. The northern kingdom in the reign of kings didn't have one good king. There was not one king in the northern kingdom to whom it could be said he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. In the southern kingdom, out of all the kings listed, there were eight that did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. This is God's people that we're talking about. Josiah is one of those kings who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Actually, Josiah is mentioned by the prophet who declares the divide of the nation of Israel, uh, prophetically. 1 Kings chapter 12, Jeroboam, who's Solomon's servant, revolts against Rehoboam, Solomon's son, who took the throne and became king. Jeroboam takes Judah, the southern kingdom, and builds two golden calves for the people to worship. It's kind of like the nation of Israel as they're traveling through the wilderness and they make that golden calf while Moses is up on the mountain. What does Moses do? Comes down the mountain, smashes the tablets, and then he shatters that golden calf, melts it down, he puts the flakes on the water, and he causes the people to drink the water with the golden calf in the water. Punishes them. The prophet has some similar words for Jeroboam about his calves that he, he encouraged the people to worship. First Kings chapter 13 and verse 1. Behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar, by the gold calves, to make offerings. The man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, O altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David. Almost sounds like the angelic announcement of Jesus' birth, isn't it? And you is born this day in the city of David, Savior. Child, the house of David, Josiah by name. He shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. It's pretty vivid, isn't it? It's the Old Testament. Pretty exciting stories in the Old Testament. Verse 3, and he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. Then there's this really cool moment in the story where King Jeroboam is like, No! And he puts his arm out, and it says his hand dries up, and he cannot move his hand because it dries up. And then he pleads with the man of God. So all of that to say, Josiah is mentioned in this prophetic moment as the nation is being divided. How many years has passed by? This eight-year-old King Josiah takes the throne, and he's mentioned by name prophetically years, decades before. 2 Kings chapter 22, look at verse 3. In the 18th year of King Josiah, here's when things start to happen. Why, why is there no record from King Josiah at age 8 to King Josiah at age 18? Why is there nothing really accomplished at his reign? What was it at 18 that caused Josiah to say, okay, it's time to get some stuff done? I, I wonder, and this is speculation, do you think that people didn't really respect an 8-year-old king? Do you think maybe they thought, 
you know what, wait until you're 18 before you start making some calls. We'll just put the advisory board in place. You'll be kind of the, the, the figurehead of the nation, but we'll let those guys make the decisions. And then when you're 18, then, then you'll have a little more skin in the game. You can have some say. I don't know. So he's 18 years old. Verse 3. The king sent Shaphan, the son of Azalea, son of Meshullam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. Let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house. That is, to the carpenters, to the builders, to the stonemasons. Let them use it for buying timber, quarried stone, to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. Well, that's good to know that they're honest people, isn't it? This makes me think of Nehemiah repairing the walls in Jerusalem. Do you remember why he did that? What he said to the king? It's a disgrace to God's city, to God's nation, to God's people to have those walls broken down. All of the surrounding nations, they pass by, they see these broken walls, and it's just shame and embarrassment on God and God's people. So we need to rebuild those walls because it shows a picture to the surrounding nations of what we believe is the faithfulness of our God. You know, when you travel around Atlantic Canada, this is kind of vacation season, right? People are traveling, people are coming and going, maybe you're here visiting today. You travel through small communities in rural Nova Scotia or around the Maritimes. What do you see in the center of almost every one of those communities? A church building. You got the steeple. Apparently the steeple is the landmark that everything else was measured off of. And you can see it. When you, when you come into town, you can see the, the replacement steeple after Hurricane Fiona on the old church building down in Great Village, right? When you're traveling into these small communities, you see the church building. More often than not, what you'll find is the church building has either been sold and turned into a family home or a restaurant. Uh, maybe it's just sitting there. It's vacant. Maybe it's been abandoned. Maybe it's looking decrepit and the paint is falling off. There's been no landscaping. There's more stain than there is stained glass. You know what I'm talking about? We've all seen those buildings. Now just think, what does that community think about the church? And I'm using the church as a general term. We know the church isn't a building. Church isn't just an event on Sunday. The church is people. What does the surrounding community think of church? When they see that building Monday through Friday as they drive by. Does it give them a high expectation on what those people think about Christianity or the local church. And I know there's all sorts of situations and all sorts of reasons as to why those buildings would be abandoned or not taken care of. What does our facility show the people who drive by of what we believe about our God and about coming together as a church community? Does it speak good things or does it raise question marks as to whether or not we really value the message that we preach and the truth we believe, the community we share, the mission that we engage in. Josiah says, get the money, pay the workmen, 
Hire the carpenters, the builders, the masons, order the timber, cut the stones. It's, it's really a good leadership move is what it is. Something as simple as a renovation can build some momentum, some excitement, some believability, some vision casting. If we can do this, what can we do next? When we finished our solar campaign project and we raised $50,000 in seven months and we saw it all constructed right out here out the windows, a lot of the questions that came were, what's next? If we can do this, what can we do next? What should we do next? We've got lots of little projects going on this summer. We've got a, a picnic shelter pavilion going up. Uh, we're going to have this wall and these windows reconstructed and repaired because of some leaking issues. We've got different things happening around the property. That's not necessarily what the church is all about, but those are byproducts of discipleship. Those are tools that aid in discipleship. If we can do this, what else can we do? What's next? King Josiah kicks this off and gets it moving. Builds some believability, some momentum. It prompts this conversation. What are we going to do next, King Josiah? Buildings and projects really boil down to our value of community, don't they? Why have a building? Well, so that we can bring the community of the church family together in person. Why develop property? Well, it's for the benefit of the church community and the surrounding community. Projects inspire community as people come together, work together, shoulder to shoulder. That's how men connect, isn't it? In the garage, working on an engine, passing the wrench. That's when we get to know each other. It shares a vision of what could be. It's hard to get the car moving from a dead stop, but once you get a little bit of momentum going, it becomes easier to push. Moving the vision forward. Josiah is taking steps to restore the people's view in their God, in the temple. God is worth more than a decrepit temple. He deserves an updated house. As the work began, there was a discovery made that changed the story. It's the catalyst for all of this restoration and revival. Look at 2 Kings chapter 22 and verse 8. Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan the secretary and he read it. Shouldn't God's word be found in God's temple? Like, wouldn't, that, wouldn't that make sense? Wouldn't that be the first place you'd look? Shouldn't truth be a staple of our local church community? I mean, these are our core values. It's, it's great to spend time together, but we can do that at the gym. We can do it on the deck in the backyard around the pool. People do it at the bar or, or wherever we get together in the community. You can find community other places. So what separates us? What sets us apart? Well, it's our other two core values, truth and engagement. If there's no truth found in the local church, then what's the point of getting together? We can find community in other places. But it's the truth that unites us, isn't it? It's our unity in the bonds of Christ, unity in the cross of Christ. That's what unites us. When you go to a local church, you should expect to find the truth being preached in that local church, shouldn't you? Hilkiah discovered in the wall as they're renovating the temple a copy of the book of the law. 
the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible recorded through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Hilkiah finds these. What does Hilkiah, who happens to be the high priest, what does he do with the book of the law? Did you catch that? He didn't read it. He gave it to the secretary. You'd expect him to read it, wouldn't you? I mean, he's the high priest. Do you think they got their job descriptions mixed up over the years? What was the high priest doing? He's counting the money, distributing the money, paying carpenters to work on the building. What's the secretary doing? Well, the secretary's doing all the communicating, all the vision casting, carrying the message from the king to the priest, and he's the one reading the law of God. Do you think maybe they got their job descriptions mixed up somewhere in a generation there in the kingdom of Judah? Shouldn't the high priest be the one to read and embrace and preach and proclaim the truth of the law of God? Shouldn't the secretary be the one dispersing the money and counting the money? They got it flipped, didn't they? The word of God had been forgotten in the temple building so long, the high priest didn't know it was his duty to study and to preach the word of God. Didn't know that was part of his job. He hands the book to the secretary. Shaphan reads it, and then he takes it to King Josiah. Look at verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes, which was customary in that culture when you're in mourning, when you're in repentance, when you want to show regret and pain tore his clothes. Verse 12, And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikim the son of Shaphan, Akbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the secretary, Asiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Keep in mind, Josiah is 18 years old. Do you remember a few weeks back, we celebrated our graduates, high school graduates, we brought them up on stage, we presented them with a gift. 18 years old, that's the age group we're talking about. King Josiah, at 18, could have responded with, I didn't know. Nobody told me. It's my father's fault. It's the fault of all the kings and all the generations who came before. It's society's fault. Society has made us who we are. What could we have done? I didn't know the book of the law was there. Don't blame me. That's not what he does. He immediately tears his clothes and he calls the high priest to make intercession for the people. Go to God in prayer and pray for mercy, pray for grace, pray for his loving kindness, because this is on us. How often, and I don't want to be too hard on teenagers, I remember what it was like to be 18 years old. I remember some of what it was like to be 18 years old. It can be hard to take responsibility for not just your actions, but responsibility for the people around you. That was a huge step in my journey of adolescence to remember that 
to realize that life isn't just all about me. My decisions, my example, my testimony, the words that I use, the way that I treat people, it doesn't just have an effect and a bearing on me, it affects all the people around me. And therefore, I am my brother's keeper. And I do need to have a level of care and compassion and accountability with the people around me, in my community, the people I work with, the people I live with, the people that I go to church with, the people that I, I am the local church with. I'm accountable for them too. It's not just society's fault. It's not just their fault. You realize, I don't know if this is since COVID, but I feel like the magnifying glass went on it. We, we talk about those people. We talk about them. And I'm not just saying conspiracy theories. I'm not just talking about the government. I'm saying we use this term generally when we're talking. Them, they, oh yeah, they. And then when you say, well, who do you mean by they? Sometimes we don't even know who we're talking about. It's just this, this scapegoat they that we want to throw the blame on because the blame belongs with somebody, doesn't it? And it's easier to point the finger than it is to take responsibility, isn't it? King Josiah could have said like, hey, I'm 18. When I, was, when I became king, that was 10 years ago. I've been king for 10 years. I was eight years old. I don't have any responsibility here. That's not my fault. Let's start a brand new chapter. Forget about that. Let's rewrite the history books. Let's redefine the definitions. And let's just move on in, into this new age of enlightenment because now we have the law and we're not responsible for all of that back then. That's not what he does. He says the mistakes and the sin and the poor choices and the way in which the fathers and the kings and the generations that came before me forgot the word of God has bearing on us right now. And we need to take responsibility on that. Step up and be accountable for the sin in our own lives and for the sin in society around us. I, I loved what Alex had to say during the Lord's table when he was talking about the thief on the cross. He realized that it was his sin that put him on that cross. It's not society's fault. It's not, not the way in which his parents raised him. It's not some person that pushed him into this life of crime and he didn't have a choice around it, he realized, I need a savior. This is on me. He took responsibility and Jesus says those words, today you will be with me in paradise. Praise God. This, this is critical to conversion, by the way. This, the gospel requires that we take responsibility for our sin. If, if we cannot take responsibility for our sin, then that means we're not willing to admit that we have a problem and we need a savior. If you cannot take responsibility for your sin, you cannot receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and savior. Because if you don't believe that you have any sin to be responsible for and accountable to God for, then you don't need Jesus. You need to wake up to your reality that you are depraved and fallen and a sinful human being living in a broken world. And once you realize your state and take responsibility for where you're at, then you can turn to Jesus. Say, God, I'm sorry for my sin. 
please forgive me. The, the gospel hinges on us realizing that it's our responsibility, it's our sin. That, that's what made the decision for me when I was eight years old. I realized that Jesus didn't, didn't just die for the sins of the world. He died for my sin. My sin put him on the cross. That's, that's what changed the game for me. You see, revival doesn't happen without God's word and without prayer. When Josiah hears the law of God, maybe for the first time, his response is prayer. The word of God and prayer are integral in revival. If there's going to be a move of the spirit, it hinges on the word of God and prayer. Josiah hears God's word. He responds with conviction, repentance, tearing his clothes, taking responsibility, and now he's sending Hilkiah to pray, seek God, ask for forgiveness, plead for mercy. An 18-year-old kid leading revival for the nation. Verse 14. So Hilkiah the priest, Ahikim, Akbor, Shaphan, Asiah, did I say those right? Sure. <laughs> Went to Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they talked with her. She said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me. They have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. Those are difficult words, aren't they? We should talk about that. Verse 18. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants that they should become a desolation and a curse, you've torn your clothes, you've wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. Just a quick note that came to my mind. It's not in my notes. King Josiah lived to 39. And then as he goes to visit with the king of Egypt, he gets shot in the heart with an arrow. And he dies at 39. Death is, I was going to say not a fun thing, but that doesn't even sound appropriate. It's, it's a terrible thing. It's the curse of sin. But Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. To live is Christ and to die is gain. God is granting Josiah mercy in bringing him home to heaven early. I don't know how that works in the painful situations that you've lived through in life. Losing a loved one, it seemed too early and you question God's timing or God's grace and mercy. 
Let me tell you, because of the curse of sin, anything short of eternal death without God is an aspect of God's grace. What we deserve is hellfire for all eternity because of our sin. But what we get is life and an opportunity to hear and respond to the truth of the good news that Jesus took your place so that you don't have to spend eternity in that state. That you get to be with God. Anything less than hell is an aspect of God's grace in our life, but because of our sin, that's what we deserve. We live in an age of grace, the age of the church. When you're, when you're looking at the timeline of history throughout the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, what we're reading here in 2 Kings is the age of law. The gospel of Jesus the Messiah is, is prophesied, it's awaited, but it's still a future event at this point. Jesus has not yet died for the sins of the world on the cross at this point in history in 2 Kings. This can be a difficult aspect of the Old Testament for people to grasp. It seems unfair, the, the unquenchable wrath of God, the righteous anger, the disaster. You know, all of this points to the seriousness of sin. Sin is serious. It's not something to be trifled with. It's not something to joke about. Singing rock songs about parties in hell, that couldn't be further from the truth of what God's word presents. The price for sin has to be paid. And this is illustrated throughout the Bible. In the time of law, it was a sacrificial system. You would bring your sacrifice to the altar and that lamb would be killed, its blood would be spilled, and it would be burned on the altar. Why did they do that? It's, it's because throughout the redemptive story of the Bible, God provides the lamb and points ahead to when the spotless lamb of God would be given. That's the Lord's table that we celebrated this morning. Every time the lamb was slain, it was a picture, it was a reminder, God saying to the people, just wait, the Messiah is coming. Jesus is going to die for your sin. And this lamb that's been slain, it's just a picture of what Jesus is going to do for you. Salvation has always been by faith in Jesus Christ. These people in the Old Testament just had to look ahead to the future event that would take place and rely on the promises of God and the picture of this lamb that was slain time and time again to cover the sins of the people. The truth is, God must punish sin. He has to. If he's a good judge, if he's righteous, he has to punish sin. You know, before I was a parent, I would judge parents because I thought I knew what it meant to be a good parent. And then becoming a parent, you realize you know nothing about parenting and you're just, yeah, you're in need of help all the time. I, I used to watch parents and, and they would say, I'm going to count to three, two and a half, you know, you know how that goes? Or they're in the store and, and you're in the grocery line, the kid's throwing a tantrum and then all of a sudden it turns into this game of bribery like, hey, what's behind door number two? Is that going to get you to stop crying? And I used to think like, oh, come on, parents, come on. And then I became one and I realized God is a good heavenly father. He's righteous and just. 
If parents don't discipline kids, if there are no consequences, if you just let them free range and do whatever you want and, and give in to this modern gentle parenting approach where you never say no or never say don't, it's not going to go well for the kid. Because eventually in their growth and development, they're going to bump into a boss or a teacher or a professor, somebody in their community, a police officer, who's going to say no and they're not gonna know how to respond. God says no to his kids, because he's a good father. God must punish sin. If we come to God and we say, hey God, I'm so sorry for my sin, I did this, this, and this, I, I, I just feel so terrible for it, and God said, oh, they're there. I, I see that you're so bent out of shape about this. I see your tears. I hear you pleading. And so I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna sweep this one under the rug. I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna pretend I didn't see that. I'm just gonna let that one go. He wouldn't be a righteous and holy God, would he? The only reason God can forgive our sin is because the price was paid by somebody else. You see, that's how God is a righteous and just judge, but also loving and merciful and gracious. Jesus willingly went to the cross to pay for your sin so that you don't have to pay for your sin. But the price was still paid because God must punish sin. Does that make sense? So when we see in the Old Testament God's righteous anger, his indignation, his wrath against sin, we can look at Jesus and say thank you for taking the punishment of sin for me and my family, my church, and my community. Look at chapter 23 and verse 1. So the king hears these words, and the king sent, and all the elders of Judah, Jerusalem, were gathered to him. The king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, the prophets, all the people, both small and great. Kind of, kind of sounds like a Dr. Seuss story right there, doesn't it? The little people, the big people, the... everybody's there. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. How long would it take you to read the whole Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? That's a long service. I tried to figure it out, best guess, 13 and a half hours to read the first five books of the Bible. I bet you in this culture, in this day and age, they stood for the reading of the word of God. They're at the house of the Lord, which isn't quite refurbished and, and finished yet. So I'm guessing if they have that many people, they're probably standing outside for 13 and a half hours while King Josiah, this 18-year-old kid, reads the whole book of the law. That'd be quite the church service, wouldn't it? Verse three. The king stood by the pillar and he made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments, his testimonies, his statutes, with all his heart, with all his soul, to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book, 
and all the people joined the covenant. Covenant is a promise. It's an agreement. It's much like the language around baptism. Our desire is to follow God from this day forward in accordance with his will as he enables us to do so. Josiah makes a public declaration of his promise before God to value his word and to live in accordance with God's law. He goes public with it. And like baptism, it's public. It's it's in front of everyone. He gathers all the people, both great and small. He declares this promise before them all. And the people respond in claiming the same promise. Can I ask you, would, would the results be the same if Josiah did this in private? If he said, hey, Shaphan, you know, I heard what you said about the law of God. Come in here, we'll shut the door, we'll read it, and I'll, I'll make some decisions. The fact that Josiah does this in front of the entire nation, he gathers everybody, both great and small, the noble, all the way down to the poor beggar, And he declares this in front of them, that this is the word of God, it's truth, and I'm going to live all my days in accordance with God's truth. That's the only reason why the people had an opportunity to claim the same covenant and make that profession of faith before God. That's why baptism is public. Baptism is where we publicly profess our decision, our faith in Jesus Christ. So that all those who hear can be inspired, and can have the Holy Spirit work on their heart to make that same public claim. All the people respond in accordance with Josiah's covenant. Now, I assume the pillar that he's leaning against is a pillar of the temple that's being renovated and it's restored. He brought everybody up to the house of the Lord. Names had a lot more significance back in this day. And you know what Josiah's name means? Josiah is Yah Asherah. Yah is Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God. And Asherah is buttress or pillar. His name means God is my pillar. God is the altar that I will lay my life on. This this is the king who's about to tear down all of the altars and all of the high places to the false gods. And his name means God is the high place. God is the foundation. God is the altar. He's the pillar. He's the stone. I love that. There's, There's this embracing of the word of God and turning to God in prayer and making this public profession of faith. And then there's an equal relinquishing. There's, there's a taking hold, and then there's a letting go. So let's talk about the letting go in the time that we have left. Look at verse 4 of chapter 23. The king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, the priests of the second order, the keepers of the threshold, to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessel, vessels made for Baal, false god, for Asherah, false god, and for all the hosts of heaven, all of the false gods. He burned them outside of Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron, and carried their ashes to Bethel. So the first thing Josiah does after making this public profession is to take all of the objects of idol worship out of the temple and destroy them and eradicate them. 
Do you have an object in your life that serves as an idol in your life? You know what idolatry is, right? It's, it's anything that takes your attention and affection away from God and places it on itself. Something that you worship in place of God. The first one that comes to my mind, and I probably use it too much, is the cell phone. How many hours do we give to that little device in our pocket? I mean, it, it is an object. We set it around in places. We probably put it in a certain place because it is valuable. and We don't want the kids to knock it down. Is that an object of idolatry in your life? What, what are some objects in your life that might take your focus off of God? Is it, is it a project that you're working on? Uh, something you've been dreaming about? Toys? Is it cigarettes? Alcohol? Is it sex? What takes your attention away from God? What are the things that are stealing your heart away from God? The next thing Josiah does is to deal with the people. First he deals with the objects, and then he deals with the people that are drawing the heart of the people away from God. Look at verse 5. He deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places of the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal, the sun, the moon, and the constellations, and all the hosts of heaven. So they're into like astrology. They're getting into all these false gods and false practices. There's, there's a false gospel being preached all over Atlantic Canada every Sunday. And it... And it it's, it's a gospel stew of sorts. Like Jesus is the broth. And as long as Jesus is the broth, we can just add in whatever ingredients we want, right? We got Jesus. So let's, let's add in a little astrology. We'll see if the stars will line up for us. Then we'll throw in some dragon crystals and we'll do some uh, yoga meditation. And then we'll head down to this other church that doesn't preach the gospel and see what they have to say. And we'll throw that in there too. And, and we'll add all of these worldly ideas into that stew. But as long as Jesus is the broth, it's going to come out tasting good, right? How many things can you add to the gospel before it's no longer the gospel? John 14, 6 makes it pretty clear. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. It's Jesus plus nothing. Josiah takes quick action. He destroys the objects that held the people captive, and then he gets rid of the people who are enabling the idolatry. The term depose means to cease and desist, to put an end to. Now, are there people in your life, and I'm not saying you should put an end to anybody, um, the term depose in the Hebrew could simply mean take a break from, take a rest. Are there people in your life that maybe you need to take a break from? Maybe there's, there's a relationship where they, they wouldn't necessarily say in so many words, hey, I'm, I'm drawing you away from God. But maybe they would say something like, uh, forget that church thing and come to the bar. Don't be so uptight. Why are you reading the Bible when you could be online gaming with me? Are you seriously going to give your time and money to Jesus? What's that all about? <laughs> so, sorry, Siri. Maybe it's time you had a conversation with those people. And you said, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And here's what that means for my life. Here's why this is important to me. And I'm sorry, I can't say yes to your request to step away from God and chase after whatever you're proposing. 
Say goodbye to the objects of idolatry. Maybe you've got to take a break from the people who encourage idolatry in your life. Look at verse 8. The places of idolatry. He brought all the priests out of their cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings, from Geba to Beersheba. He broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on ones left at the gate of the city. The high places of idol worship. Now, why were altars at the high places? Maybe it was easier to find. Maybe those places were deemed a little more special. Maybe, maybe the idea of going uphill is kind of like we're going up to worship, but they were easy to find. And then it takes a step beyond that. He mentions the idols that are inside the gate of Joshua. As you walk into the city, they're right here on your left. You know what? When, when we talk about places of idolatry, maybe your mind jumps to like jumping on a plane to go have an affair in Thailand. Can I encourage you? That's probably not what most of us struggle with. It's probably the places that we pass by every single day, like right inside the gate of the city. It's probably, probably the websites that we go to every single day from the comfort of our own home. I don't know, maybe, maybe it's the bar, maybe it's the dispensary that you drive by. Maybe, maybe there are places in the community that you travel by every day that... Maybe you could change your route to work. Maybe there are places that you should stop going to. Maybe there are websites you should stop going to. Maybe there are TikTok accounts that you should stop following. I bet you there's places in your life that aren't encouraging you towards God. Instead, they are drawing you away from God that you could avoid. Where are those places that you experience temptation to rebel against God? Josiah just destroys those places, tears them down, eradicates them. Because here's what's at stake. Verse 10. He defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. Here's how ridiculous this is. Molech is this God, this fertility God, believe it or not. He's got his hands stretched out like this on his stone statue. And they would build a fire inside and they would place their infant children on so that Molech would bless them with fertility and blessing. You tell me how far the nation of Israel had to come to think that that was a good idea? Sacrificing the lives of the next generation for for what? For themselves? Is that where we're at in society? Are we sacrificing the lives of the next generation unwittingly? Isn't that what idolatry is like? You know, I heard of this picture of sin and I'll never forget it. Sin is like having a pet baby tiger. And it's so cute and cuddly and it's all furry and fuzzy. And you take it on walks on the leash and all the neighbors think it's the coolest thing ever. And when you bring it in work, you're talk of the town, right? Because who has a pet tiger? And then you feed the thing, and what do tigers do? Well, they grow. Maybe it gets some claws or some teeth, and it nips at you. And when your friends see the mark on your arm, they say, like, if they care about you, they'll probably say, hey, do you think that pet tiger is such a good idea? Because I think it's growing. I think it's getting claws. I think you're being affected by it. No, 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 no. I've got it all under control. See, I've got it on a leash. I can still... 
I can still hold it back. I'm in control. And then you keep feeding the tiger, and then eventually the tiger turns around and eats you and your family. That's sin. That's a visual, isn't it? You see, we, we think we've got it under control. Hey, I just do this in the privacy of my own home. Nobody knows about it. It's not affecting anybody. You know, it's, it's just for me. I've got it under control. I can stop when I want. It's, it's not an unbreakable habit yet. I'm not addicted. I just do a little bit when I need to. And it's not harming anybody. And then one day, which isn't really one day, is it? It's a process of that thing growing and becoming habitual and taking over your life slowly and surely until you realize, wait a second, this has taken everything I have and the people who are dearest and closest to me. Isn't that what sin is like? That's the problem with sin. It, it destroys not just our life, but often it destroys the people around us. The Israelites were sacrificing their kids to Molech because they wanted fertility and blessing. Don't let sin lie to you. you know, Lucifer parades around as this angel of light. It's like a commercial. It always makes things look better than they truly are, right? Do you remember when you were a kid and those toys would be advertised on the commercial? It's like, wow, I need that. And then you get it and it's like, whoa, the commercial made it so much cooler than it actually was. That's like sin. The devil shows you this beautiful picture of the greener grass on the other side of the fence. And when you get there, you realize it's hollow, it's empty. There's no satisfaction in it. Don't let sin lie to you. Get rid of the objects that call you away from God. Stop hanging out with the people who are calling you away from God. Don't go to the places that tempt you to sin. Don't cause the people you love to suffer because of your sin. But here's the thing. As Josiah has been pointing out, it's not just enough to say no to sin. Repentance isn't just a gospel of try harder. Stop sinning. Try doing good things in your life. Help more old women across the street when they need it. Be good to the people around you. Try, try to stop doing the bad things and try to start doing the good things. That's not the gospel. How do you like my white sneakers? I was in the States last year. We were at the outlet. And I told myself before I went, I would never get white sneakers again. And then I saw these and they were on a really good sale. And I said, yeah, let's, let's give it another go. And you know what I found out over the last year? They're not easy to keep white, are they? And I find when I'm, when I'm getting ready to go outside and I, I walk in my entryway, all my shoes are there. They're the last pair I want to go for. You know why? Because I might get them dirty. And you know what I think about while I'm wearing them? You know what I thought about when I had the communion juice in my hand? <laughs> you just don't want to wear them anywhere. Because, and here's what I'm trying to say. I might get way off base here. But if your thought is, I just need to stop sinning. I just need to keep myself clean. I just need to stay out of the dirt. I just need to stay away from those places and those things and those people. And as long as I keep a safe distance, I'll stay clean. Do you know all you can think about is getting dirty? If all you're thinking about is sin, guess what you're going to be predisposed to do? You see, repentance is more about trying to 
trying to stay clean and trying to stay away from sin, repentance is a 180 degree turn where instead of embracing sin, we embrace Jesus and his cross. And with our eyes focused on Jesus and our minds set on things above, guess where that sin goes to? The rear view mirror. Thank you, Jesus. Last verses, way over time. Verse 21. The king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God. As it is written in this book of the covenant, you know what that is? It's a reminder to set our eyes on what Jesus has done for us. That's where our focus is to be. Verse 22, no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel. That was a long time ago or during all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. Passover feast was the spotless lamb that was slain during the 10th plague as the people of Israel were about to be freed from slavery in Egypt and they put the blood on the doorpost and the lintel and that 10th plague was the death angel. When it saw the blood, it would pass over that house, spare the firstborn son, and then the people were freed from slavery. That's the picture of the Passover meal. Jesus takes that picture and says, a new commandment, a new covenant I give you. His blood is the new covenant. Jesus Christ didn't just cover us in blood. He didn't just cover our sin. He cleanses us of all sin so that we can be white as snow. We don't have to worry about the dirt and grime of this world as long as our eyes are set on Jesus and we're choosing to follow him all the days of our life as God enables us to do so. That's what the picture of the Lord's table is all about. And Josiah calls the people to set their focus on the Passover meal. Keep in mind, this spotless lamb who is slain for you is a picture of the Messiah who's coming, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to cleanse you from all sin. That's the gospel. It's not about trying harder. It's not about trying to stay away from sin and be a good Christian. It's about fully embracing Jesus Christ. To be a disciple is to follow Jesus Christ, to be all in, to be bought in, to be invested, to take up your cross daily and follow him. That's what it's all about. So that's why Josiah is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. And to close off this morning, I want to let you know about something that we want to do that's kind of new this summer. We want to share with you uh, some discussion questions from the sermon time. I always find the end of the sermon the hardest time in the whole service to figure out what to do and what to say. So I'm just going to say this. Let's keep this conversation going. When you get home, when you're having lunch with your friends and family, maybe in the quiet moments this afternoon, this evening, this week, I want you to pull these questions out. We're going to put them in the newsletter. Maybe we'll throw them out on social media. Maybe you can take a picture of them right here and now. You can look it up on the live stream. And I want you to think through, maybe with your life group, maybe with a friend over coffee, and I want you to chat through. What are the objects in my life? Who are the people in my life? What are the places that I pass by all the time that are drawing me away from God? What do I need to let go of? And how do I fully embrace the gospel today? What does this look like for me personally right here, right now, July 9th, 2023? Okay? Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? And then we'll go find those poor kids who've been outside way too long. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much 
for being here together as a church family to celebrate you, what you've done, this good news that Jesus died for our sins, those who were baptized that we get to celebrate their public profession of faith. Thank you for the Lord's table, that your body was broken, your blood was shed. Thank you that we get to sing songs about freedom, the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, that we don't have to be slaves to sin any longer, worrying about our white shoes, but we get to embrace you and leave the sin in the rearview mirror. Thank you, God. Thank you for what you've done for us, the freedom and forgiveness that you've brought through your son. We embrace that today. In Jesus' name, amen.